So I, I, uh, I hesitate to ask for um, questions about the sermon. <laughs> That's such a, uh, a, a challenging passage. But we're ha- we happen to be in a um, topic today that I think it's going to be legitimate to bring up some of these issues because I think uh, we'll talk a little bit about allegory and we'll talk a little bit about um, authorial intent and how to read the whole scripture in light of, uh, or a particular passage in light of the, the whole of scripture. That's really the... Um, the central um, perspective here, um, but as we as we begin, let's um, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you have allowed us um, to have access to your Word, and that the Word is not just a, a dead document, but it is living and active, and that it works in our lives. Thank you that you have uh, given us such abundant access to it um, through uh, Bibles that are available, even now online and on our phones. It just seems like we can have your word uh, accessible uh, as instantaneous as just desiring it. And Father, um, though that is a great privilege, we realize we have done such a poor job of reading it. Not only a poor job of, of taking the time to read it, but a poor job of seeking uh, the truth from it. We've done so much reading into it and changing the truth of it to lies, wanting to see what we want to see. Father, humble us, help us, use this class as a way that we can sharpen each other so that the true power of your word, the true life that it offers, will be produced in our lives. We need this, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we have been in this uh, series on uh, the interpretation of the scriptures, and amazingly, I pray, and this shows up. Thank you. That was awesome. Did it? Yes. All right. It's already in there. Very good. So uh, we have moved uh, at this very class. We've now made the transition to talking about specific genres. Last time, we talked about making a literary approach to the Bible as a whole, Um. This is now focusing on the first of many genres that the Bible is composed of. And uh, just to think about the richness of the scriptures that we have, we don't just have commands. We don't just have a textbook. We don't just have, um, you know, even a series of poems or, or letters. We've got all of those things. We've got an amazing uh, richness and variety of scripture that, um, that's really exciting to, to be able to go into. So now, and for the rest of the, the study, we are going to take particular types of literature, what we call genres, and we're going to talk about how to interpret them faithfully as a whole. So um, does that make sense? Questions about that? All right. We're going we're gonna to begin... Uh, this class with uh, looking at the Old Testament historical narratives. Um, what should we be doing as we, um, as we enter into the, the, the stories that are being told in the Old Testament? Uh, I want to begin by at least saying that this is a huge chunk of the Old Testament. About 40% of the Old Testament is written in historical narrative. Um, you'll see most of these uh, books are largely composed of narratives. Genesis, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, Jonah, and Haggai. All of those books have largely um, 
narrative components to them or are exclusively. And then sir, there's some other books that are that, that have some other aspects in them, whether it's, it's law or prophecy or something like that, but mostly have narrative. So why? I want to begin with why, and it, it's a, how you answer that question, I think, is, is going to be um, instructive on how we'll read these narratives. Why do you think God has given us so many stories? Bill. All right. Yes. Yes. I will be using story and narrative a lot as I talk about this, but um, don't read into your brain that that is non-historical. Um, as we talked last time, that a literary approach means we're going to focus on how the story is told, uh, but that this is real history that this is giving us a window into. So, um, so yeah, historical, that, uh, emphasizing that this stuff really happened. Good. What about some other reasons? Easy to relate. Excellent. Yeah. These are real people. These are humans. We're human. We can see a connection between them, and, and reading, relating to uh, a narrative is much easier than an abstract concept or a command. Good. Others? Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, there. It's enjoyable. You can, you know, not only do you connect with it, but you can in appreciate and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It gives a, a real connection. Yeah, Sally. Yep. Yep. And ones that, you know, many of you can still, it doesn't matter what church you grew up in, you can still recall some of these from when you were you taught them as a kid. Or, um, you know, if you haven't experienced that as a kid, sometimes you hear other people know all these stories. How do you know them? Well, you taught them as a kid and they kind of stick with you. All of those are great explanations, but if they were all individual without each other, um, they'd all be, they'd all lead you um, to m misinterpretation. Um, and I, I don't mean that to, to denigrate any of them. They're all excellent. But if they were only a glimpse into history, then we'd fall into the errors of what we talked about last time. We wouldn't be paying attention to how the narrator is explaining it. We'd only try to get the narrator away and say, well, what, what really happened? If we see it as something to relate to, that's great. We need that connection. But if it was only something to relate to, then we'd only see it and reading ourselves into all these passages and missing the bigger picture of the story of what's going on here. We could see these as great stories, but if they just leave, uh, stay in entertainment, then we'll miss the fact that it needs to impact our lives. So I, I want us to spend a few minutes here just to think about why these stories are there to give uh, 
a window into how we approach some of these stories. Um, but it's, it's unmistakable that God gives us a bunch of them. Um, there are three levels to narrative. I, I want to give a brief definition of what narrative is um, and simply state it's a story with a plot and characters. I mean, it doesn't get much simpler than that as a definition. A biblical narratives are not telling any story, though. It isn't simply a snapshot of ancient times. It's not a biography of heroes. Um, all biblical narratives fit into a greater narrative so that um, while we're going to talk about particular narratives, we must never forget the highest level, the top level, which is the narrative that connects the whole of Scripture. And we need to fit these, these particular narratives into the, the, um, the, the small or the, the, the bigger picture of it. Um, the top, the overarching story of God's plan goes from creation through the fall and redemption to the final consummation. The middle level, immediate redemptive historical context, um, which would be depending on the story. If the story is talking about the Garden of Eden, we're talking about something pre-fall. If it's in the patriarchal period, in the, the time of the um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have to understand that before Mosaic Law comes in. Um, if it's in the time of the Mosaic Law, that's going to be a different era. And I say all that to say if we don't locate this middle level, we're going to be really prone to miss, missing and misreading the narrative. So we need to have the top level, we need to have the middle level, and then we need to have the bottom level. We need to be able to analyze particular stories. And this is going to require some of those tools that you learned in English class. Who here couldn't stand English class literature? Okay, one bowl. Okay, we got a couple, maybe three. I was an English major. I'm deeply offended. How dare you? No. Yeah, if it, some people, <laughs> it, some people are just not going to be able to jive with this or, or resist some of this. Um, uh, but I'll ask you just to press through because these tools um, are really going to be helpful to getting into the intended meaning that God has for us. I want us to start at this bottom level as I think we should always start when we approach an Old Testament narrative. We need to start with what the text is actually saying. What is, this, what is the, the point of the story in the, book of, in the book that it's being communicated in? Then going up to, okay, well, where does that fit in its middle level in the redemptive context? And then in the bigger picture of the whole of Scripture. So any, any questions of that? Do you think that's legitimate? All right. There'll be a lot of places, uh, some of the schooling I had after seminary, um, that would argue that going anywhere out of the, the bottom level is misreading the text. Why would I say that, um, why would they say that? Let's just start there. Why would they say anything out of the bottom level is misreading the text. Well, uh, I mean, who I'm talking about? Well, no, these would be these would be Christians, people who identify themselves as Christians. But even if they weren't, I mean, what's 
what would be an argument for only staying in the bottom level? Yeah, Joshua. Yeah, okay. Look, stop melding this. Um, and there's a, there's a very good reason to say stop melding these stories together because you're, you're not going to listen to the particular author. You're not doing justice to it. What else? What's another? Yeah. It shouldn't have universal application. Yeah, yeah. Some of them, look, that they're talking about Babylon there. They're talking about that particular story. Don't, don't import America into that. And there's a lot of that sort of, um, I saw a great chart of the United States one time. And, and someone said, okay, this is the temple. And you see here that uh, the showbread is Kansas, because that's the breadbasket, right? And then where's the lamp of oil? Texas, yes, of course. I couldn't believe that because the Holy of Holies would be California. <laughs> I'm just not, not going with that. Um, you know, we can read into all those things. You, you would, it would pr- be prone to importing things. Okay, th- those are actually pretty good reasons why we should just stay in the bottom level. But why can't we stay in the bottom level? Okay, you don't get the whole picture. And what's the reason why? Someone else would go back and say, well, we get enough. We get what we're supposed to get out of that. What's the, what's the reason why you're not getting the whole picture? Or that you would argue back? And that is? Yeah. We're we're making, yeah, Joshua, yeah. Okay, we have good, we have good precedent. Some of them will criticize Jesus and Paul for doing that, but we're not going to play that game. Yes. Right. Yeah, which means that there's one author to it, which is God. Yeah, right, exactly. God is the author of the whole story, and it is creating one story. And however much it looks from time to time like different accounts of things that are, comp- I mean, we're talking a story that goes over thousands of years and different cultures, um, but we want to say that it's a single thread. There's a history to it, um, that if we, if we miss that this is a big, this is one story, we're going to misunderstand the scriptures. Um, so I want to argue that we need to um, we need to see this as an unfolding story, and we need to go from the bottom up as we interpret. Um, bottom level uh, analyzing particular stories. So this is on the website. If you don't get all this, these are tools that you should think about when you get into reading a particular story. If you don't like uh, literature, you're probably not going to like this a lot. But this is this is a pretty base level, right? What are the, who are the characters? What is the plot? Where is the climax? Whose perspective is the story given? Where does the story take place? Are there repeated phrases or ideas? When did it take place? I think so often we can see this story as, uh, as hyper-relatable to that that person looks exactly like my situation, and we then don't do some of these, uh, these basic um, tools. What happens if you miss this? Uh, asking some of these questions. 
Okay, yeah, you're, you're going to read more into it. You're going to more more into it. I would say that, uh, again, go, yeah, go, you want to? Yeah, right. And look, a lo- I think a lot of times we're tempted to do that because, frankly, we're not interested in what the text has to say. We want to know about the story behind the text. I have to admit that that's a lot of our struggle when we read this, the scriptures. Have you ever read the Gospels and you're like, oh, okay, this is what Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John tell me. I want to know what Jesus really was thinking here. Or I want to know what really happened in this situation. Is it just me? Am I the only one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we don't have that. In fact, God doesn't want us to have that. God wants us thi- to give us this perspective. Thankfully, we have four perspectives with the Gospels so that we do have lots of different angles at the cross. But if we want to go behind the text, we're actually getting to an area that's lost to history. But more than that, something, um, something that uh, is not for us to know. And when we speculate in that, we're going to read into to Scripture all sorts of bad things. So getting a sense of what the author has to say, because we believe the author, even though he's a human person, the author ultimately is God. And so we have to bring in these human tools to, to decide what the story is all about. Scene depiction. Pay close attention to the way the author has ordered a narrative. I think I mentioned last time when we look at the Gospels. There are three Gospels that put the cleansing of the temple at the end, almost at the, right before the crucifixion. John has the, the, te- the cleansing of the temple in chapter 2. Who's right? <laughs> so did he cleanse the temple twice? Possibly, sure. But necessarily? Not necessarily. Sometimes we want to say, well, look, it's history. It's true, right? Yes, it is true. He did cleanse the temple. But we have to pay attention to the fact that maybe there's a reason why these authors ordered the text the way they do. We do this all the time and never blink an eye on the fact that we're not telling it accurately. I could tell you about what happened to me the other day, and I will start with I got into an accident didn't really happen, just using it as an illustration. I will start with that because that was the most important thing that happened to me. And then I might go back and explain some of the other details. And just because I I ordered it that way doesn't necessarily mean it happened that way, but it doesn't mean it's not true. They use this importantly um, scene depiction as a way to emphasize the main point, what they want you to get out of this. Are you all comfortable with that? Do you understand it? You might have questions through it. It's tuning in to what the author's purpose is. The author is telling, I mean, think about almost every scriptural book as a sermon. What, what is the point being, being um, gotten here? It's not just laying out like a history textbook, as if we were to think that was neutral anyway. <laughs> but, you know, just what is the point that's at the end of this? Um, what are they getting at? Pay attention to things like foreshadowing, tension, conflict resolution, conclusion. These are all important things that that the author is going to put in descriptions that aren't arbitrary. Types of characters. Just like in a novel, you will read historical 
uh, Old Testament historical narratives, and you'll see some characters that are just flat, plain characters. Some are more developed. Um, there's reasons why uh, throughout the stories some characters change. We, ne- we need to be sensitive to, to why that is. Um, why are some stock characters doing some stereotypical things? You know, we think about the, the sermon series in Esther. Um, we heard about Haman. If we just read him in his particular character, you would miss some of his backstory. What is the author trying to describe him as? Um, not just, and, and his lineage, not just how he acted in a particular scene. Um, characterization, description. Hebrew narrative doesn't waste a lot of time doing description. So when it does, pay attention. You're getting to what the author's trying to say. You're starting to hit the point. Inner thoughts and attitudes, we hardly get this, what is, what is a character thinking? And so when we do, we need to pay attention to it. It's a major deal. Um, and contrast. So Lot might look like a decent guy. It might seem like there's not much wrong with him, but there's a contrast going on between Lot and Abraham. And um, if, we, if we miss that, um, we'll, miss it, we'll, we'll not see him in his proper context. You know, you, you read, uh, just my head has been in Hagar and, and Sarah all week. Hey, you know, you read that story and you feel very compassionate towards uh, Hagar and kind of don't feel so great about Sarah. You read the story, though, it's not about them. It's about God's promise and how we're supposed to respond to it. I mean, if we focused on that, we'd we'd um, and how our how we feel about certain characters, um, we'd miss the point of of what God's really trying to do. Um, and learning a particular style, repetition. You know what? There is a purpose. Look, I, I you hear some um, some people talk about the Old Testament as if these guys didn't know what they were doing putting together some of these stories. How many people have ever heard that there are two creation accounts in Genesis? Okay. Oh, look, yeah, look, they were so sloppy. There's two, two creation accounts, one in Genesis 1, and then they threw another one in Genesis 2, and they didn't know what to do. They just had them both, so they threw them all together. Guys, there's so much crafting in Genesis that you can, you can tell. There's reason for it. Um, if you paid attention to what's going on, um, in the structure of the entire book, you see that um, that passage has these um, starts with these. These are the generations of, and that frames that's the framework for the entire rest of Genesis. And you see in that um, Genesis two account, not a repetition, but a zooming in. It's it's a very close, you know, saying the same thing, but zooming in to uh, to the particular aspect of it. There's intentionality brought to this there's humor i i know when you read the bible sometimes you're like we're afraid to, to laugh at some of the jokes sometimes it's darn right funny you know the tower of babel gets built up as this massive thing against god this this fortress against uh, against god and the humanity and its independence building this major structure and then you know genesis 11 says and then god stooped down to look at it you know just this this tiny little thing on the ground and how it's saying it's, it's supposed you're supposed to laugh at some of these things and, and engage in its in its humor. 
Um, and to, to know that that's part of the point. A lot of what's happening in the, New, in the Old Testament narratives are satire against uh, stories of other cultures. I, I, I quoted a book last time um, on uh, Against the Gods by John Currid. And in that, he, he lays out how sometimes Moses is borrowing from the Enuma Elish. Sometimes he is borrowing, you know, you have borrowing from other cultures and other gods. This isn't stealing these. If we see how he's using the stories, they're mocking some of the accounts. Um, so a lot of times there, there is a personality behind um, some of the ways these things are presented. Getting a sense of the author's point. Uh, is the o- is only the first step, though. Interpretation um, is incomplete if we only leave it this way. And um, I tried to really sort of point that out in the sermon, too. If we just focus in on the narrow picture, we're our, we are going to miss um, the, the whole section, um, the whole meaning of it, the true meaning of it. Um, there's an implied author and there's an implied audience. You don't have to worry about well, why does why does um, why why does in the Pentateuch it it's, it says that uh, Moses is the most humble man in all of history? Who would say that about themselves? How could he possibly have written that about himself? You don't have to worry about the fact that it it uh, explains his death. How in the world did he write an account of his own death when we're told that he wrote what is it? Deuteronomy, how, how would we explain it? Well, there maybe have been a final editor to it, but we're to read this as Moses writing it. And we're to understand the context of when it's written, the implied audience. What happens if we take the book of, Ju- of Joshua um, or the book of Judges and we read directly into it the church? without any, uh, you know, implying the audience is us. What's going to happen? Could, could make for a really interesting week as you take up arms against <laughs> the infidels around you. We have to understand the context and the implied, auth- the implied audience um, that, that, is, that is there evident in the text. We have to listen for those cues. Um, so the middle section, the redemptive historical uh, context, we have to ask questions like, under what covenant administration does this narrative take place? If we're under the Mosaic covenant, would you want to know the teachings of Deuteronomy to determine, you'd, you'd want to know that, determine how the immediate narrative is related to the first level context. You'll read things like, um, if my people humble themselves and pray and confess their sins, then I will heal their land. Who has heard that about a call for America to repent? What's wrong with that? Yeah, we have no, that nation, we have no right to call our nation God's nation. Uh, or that we're God's people in that way. Now, it, it's, it's not a bad call to repentance, but if we understand heal their land as in increase our economy and help our military strength against all our enemies, 
we've got some real problems here and we're understanding it. We have to understand that in that context, in, in Chronicles, is a time when the Mosaic Law was in effect, that obedience and disobedience produced material blessing and cursing. That when they disobeyed, your king got sacked and you got brought off into a foreign land. If you sin today, that is not going to happen to our government. There may be other reasons, and depending on what sin you do, that, you know, uh, but mostly there's not going to be a spiritual correlation between your sin and the consequences now. Those were illustrations and those were that part of that covenant of what was required of us that we would always fail at. This goes back to understanding the historical consequence, consequences and the historical, redemptive historical uh, covenants that we talked about several weeks ago. Anybody have questions about that? Oh. We need to read these books in their, in their context. If we don't, we're going to really misunderstand them, missing the point. Um, if you think about the, the Galatian heresy, it's the belief that they were still under the Mosaic Covenant still left for the blessings and curses to be put upon themselves. They have not moved out of that understanding that Christ has accomplished that. Um, that's the, they didn't make that transition, and it, and it um, sent to destroy their faith. Then we must get to the top level. And again, I think this is where I want to get most defensive against those people who say, well, you're just reading things into the scriptures. Um, Genesis 3 makes this promise to Eve and says, a seed, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. What is being said to Eve there? Or perhaps Abraham gets the promise that through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What is being promised there? Did the Old Testament saints understand what they were believing in. Or do we just read Jesus back into some of this stuff? Have you ever wrestled with that question? What did the Old Testament saints really believe? Did they believe that they had to earn it themselves? Well, let's not go there. Say it one more time. Right. Yeah. Did they understand that Jesus was going to be their savior? They didn't know his name was going to be Jesus. Let's put it that way. But their hope was in Jesus. What saved them? I want to say, I want to argue very forcefully that they were saved by Jesus Christ's work on the cross. That's the only payment for sin. And that's all throughout the New Testament describes that everybody who who believed in the Old Testament, Abraham was saved by faith in Jesus Christ. How? How? Well, these promises kept coming up again and again. Voss describes it really well. I love how he puts this quote. He says, what we see in the Old Testament is organic development over the course of redemptive history. It sometimes is contended the assumption that the progress in Revelation excludes its absolute perfection at all stages. People would then say, well, they didn't have it uh, fully, so they didn't quite understand it. And they couldn't possibly have been saved by Jesus because they didn't know who Jesus was. Voss goes on. It's absolute. Uh, this would actually be so if progress were non-organic. 
The organic progress is from seed form to the attainment of full growth. Yet we do not say uh, that in the qualitative sense the seed is less perfect than the tree. We never talk about a seed being imperfect because it's not a tree. In seed form, the minimum of indispensable knowledge was already present. Everything they needed to know about salvation and the hope was there in the promise. That is exactly what Paul is trying to say in Galatians when he says, you're looking to the Mosaic covenant and you're forgetting the older covenant given to Abraham. So that you're thinking your salvation is dependent on your obedience and your presence in the land and your, um, you know, your success as a nation, but you're forgetting that it was always about faith. That's why he quotes Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk is in the middle of punishment and is saying, okay, yes, we're getting slaughtered because we're disobedient, but the just will live by faith. Going back to the promise that was always made. There's a, the- there's a, 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 a thread that goes all the way through of this idea of faith. Did they know it all? Did they know Jesus was going to die on a cross for their salvation? No. But they did know that God was going to rescue them and that he was going to do the answer. And they knew that it was going to be his initiative and then it was going to be the fulfillment of this promise. As that seed starts to develop through time, they get a clearer and clearer picture of this. So that in the prophets, you get this idea of blessing and judgment coming. And actually, they look at it as almost two events. But they, they don't realize the, the coming of the kingdom actually, um, well, actually, they see it as one event. They actually will come in, in uh, and now and not yet. So all those things start to get ex- ex- uh, explained and expanded. So that Genesis three fifteen we can say that the entire gospel, all that's needed in the gospel is wholly present there at the beginning. Yet going to a particular time, place in redemptive history it may appear um, that god uh explains this promise through signs and symbols that will yet to be fulfilled um so it will it will um become it'll get more focused uh the more it comes so that all of this so that jesus can say at, at his resurrection um as he's on the road to emmaus and beginning with moses and all the prophets he interpreted them uh to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning to himself, everything in scripture is about Jesus. We can say that legitimately, um, even though his name isn't there. You have questions about that? Yeah. Right. His point. His point is that. Don't denigrate the seed because it's not the tree. Because it because you look at it and it is it seems incomplete, then you might criticize and say, Well, they didn't have enough to know to be saved. And he's gonna say, Everything that's there that that will come is wrapped up there in the seed. And so you see this develop and um it's the same redemptive it's the same redemption and yeah, it looks like a little shoot at one point, and then it looks like a tiny little tree at another point. And then it looks, and by the time you get to the New Testament, it's this huge flowering thing, and, but it's all the same. So it's not like it was something different back then and, and the same now. And this is, uh, the New Testament authors will say, do you, do you know how much of an advantage you are? Sometimes we wish that, that 
prophecy was going on today. We wish miracles were happening in such a way that was in our face. And the New Testament authors like, guys, do you get how awesomely privileged you are? You have the entire scripture in your possession. You have far greater things that if you had uh, Elijah standing right here uh, giving you God's word directly. We have, so, we have it so much better. That's, that's the perspective. So anyway, that, that's the, the connection. Is that it gets it? Yeah. Um, we need to make adjustments, epical adjustments. So that's epoch, the era that it's in. We have to adjust uh, from the story that we read in the Old Testament to, through the cross and where we are today. Cultural adjustments. We have to overcome any cultural gaps that we have in that world, um, the things that don't make um, connections with us. And then we have to make personal adjustments. Old, young, male, female, girls, you got to do this a lot more than guys do as you understand connections with, um, with the story and the characters that are there. Rich, poor. Um, so I'm not going to even try to explain this whole thing in the time that we have left, but I, it's on the website if you want to l- look at it. Um, does this thing have a... No? All right. If we just go to its meaning in Christ and see the Old Testament thing, then we'll find Christ over under every rock. They call that leprechaun theology. If we go from the Old Testament thing directly to the preaching, putting you into that Old Testament text or the church into it, you'll wind up with allegory. And so we, we see that um, the Old Testament thing in its original context has is filled with meaning. But that has to go through the redemptive history, and then we have to understand its literal application to us today for explanation. All right, so that's quick. I'm not going to spend much time on it. Any quick questions of that? That's probably might be too quick for. <laughs> we we want to go through the process of the Old Testament thing, getting us in its context, getting its meaning, and then the significance for us. So meaning is here, significance is here. We want to we want to get to both of those things. You got to go through the process. It's it's explaining the process, and then if we go the wrong way, what what will the the negatives be to that? Some typology is okay as scripture uses it. Sometimes we can find too much typology, and we can miss. Uh, uh, mistypologize. Uh, I'm going to get to typology in a second. Um, yeah, and I, I know we're kind of wrapping up, so I'll go. Hopefully, not not too quick that we won't understand what we're saying. But allegorizing. Uh, I tried to mention this a little bit in the sermon. Why is it bad? Why is an allegory a bad thing? Right. Right. Yeah. And sometimes there's not much danger in it. You know, there's a, a story of the Good Samaritan who gives the, the innkeeper two coins, and church fathers say, well, that's, that's the Lord's Supper and baptism, right? Very clear, right? You got that when you read the Good Samaritan parable. Now, you just tend to read in. Sometimes it can be not really harmful, but you're, you're, getting, you're missing the point of the Good Samaritan if you're seeing that. You're reading into it and missing the point. Um, 
It's more than just an inaccurate method. It draws a question into the clarity and the intentionality of, of God's meaning. Does he want us to pick up the meaning? Does God want us to get the meaning in the text? Yes, he does. He doesn't want it to be a game. If you go to the text and say, okay, there has got to be some formula here. What is he, you know, he wants it to be clear. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that it's simple. One of the church fathers explains the gospel of John saying it's as deep that an elephant can bathe in it um, or to, to, to wade in it. But so um, easy to read that a baby can wade in it. So both of those things are in the gospel of John. If you start studying it and just reading it on its surface, oh, that's pretty easy to understand. But then you start to get to the depth. It's overwhelming, but you're not getting a misreading in the in the the first reading. It's all about clarity. God wants you to understand. You're never going to master it, but uh, you should always be able to understand it for it's clear. Typology is typology all bad? What in my world? Typology is what in my world corresponds with the things in that world. How do the things function in the text corresponding to the things in my world? David and Goliath is the great. Um, sort of misuse, abuse of this. Um, who is David? Probably if you're reading this for the first time, don't put yourself in David's shoes right away. David is not you. We constantly do this. We are the Davids. The Goliaths of our lives have to be overcome and defeated. If you teach this to your kids, if you are a Sunday school teacher, if you're reading it yourselves, Old Testament narratives, we constantly throw ourselves into the story. Who is the hero of the story? Ah, God. Yes, God, Jesus. This, David was a particular character. He was a king. He was, he was setting up to be the king. We need a David. Who is David? David is Jesus. We need David as the type of Christ. There's nothing that permits us to call David a type of me, we see David as a type of Christ. Um, Acts, brothers, I may say with confidence that our patriarch David, he's quoting uh, Psalm 16, I think at the time, he's like, David's dead right there. So clearly David wasn't even calling himself a type of David. Can <laughs> you see what he's saying? He's like, David's not even a type of David. David talking about his psalm, is clearly referring to Christ because David's still dead and Christ is no longer dead. So um, we have to understand that as like any king of Israel is always a type of Christ, even though it's them. We are not David. We cannot defeat our enemies if we're just faithful. God has to defeat them. Christ is our true faithful king. But not all typology is bad. Once we are in Christ... I can do what he did. I am not a sacrifice as Jesus, but I am to present my body as a living sacrifice. We, there is a way for us to connect with David as long as we connect through Jesus. We in Christ can see victory over our sin. We in Christ can, can live out the spiritual battle and the spiritual warfare um, because we're in Christ. Because of David, we know that we have to put on the full armor of God, which is Christ to see spiritual victory in our, does that make sense? Typology is not all bad. Reading ourselves in a text is not all bad, but if you do it without Christ and understanding how it goes through Christ, we are going to get to moralisms and really misreading the, the text. Is that all clear? Questions?
All right, we're almost done. Um, Galatians 3 and 4. Who is Abraham's son? Clearly it's Isaac, right? Clearly it's the Jewish people, right? He's got to interpret this whole thing in light of redemptive history. Christ is the true heir, but he can say, you are the seed. It's not just singular, it's plural. Because he, Christ is the seed, you are the seed. Um, all right, helpful hints. As I mentioned, God is the story, hero of the story. If you're reading the scripture and you just see it about wars and victories and, and people living out such amazing faith, or if you're actually reading it, you realize how many bad examples there are. It's not saying do this or don't do that and you're going to live a faithful life. We so often forget to put the character that is unstated. That's why Esther is such a great uh, illustration of Bible interpretation because that's exactly what we do. We don't put God ever in the story. And it's saying it should be conspicuous in its absence. God is all through it. When we read these narratives, even if God is present, we forget him. And say, no, he is the, the hero. He is the, the author of this. Uh, not just the author of it, but the actor, the main actor in this story. And he is the hero. It's describing what he's doing more than it is describing who we should be. They're not allegories. They're illustrates. It's, it's harm. So we're not told directly that. But we, we sometimes see the message indirectly. Um, narratives are not written to answer our specific questions. So pay attention to the purpose that the author is getting at. So often we have these questions that we want to know about the history or what happened here. And those questions that we bring to it seem like the better questions. And there's a, there's a level of humility that says, okay, maybe I don't have the best questions. Maybe I need to listen to what the text has to say. Um, all right. The most important thing, the single biggest caution Do not be a monkey see, monkey do reader of the Bible. No narrative was written specifically about you. Um, the Joseph narrative is about Joseph, but specifically about how God did things through him. It's a narrative that is directly about, it's not a directly about you, but we can never assume that God expects you to do exactly the same things that the Bible characters do. Stop reading yourself into these stories. Get yourself in there eventually, but it has to go through redemptive history and Christ. Questions about this? Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 So Catherine Voss, uh, I can't remember what it's called, Story Bible or something like that. Uh, children's Story Bible. There's a couple volumes. Um, I think Sally Lloyd Jones is um, uh, 